Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. We're live. Hey, what's up, everybody? All right, so I'm going to be stepping in as guest moderator tonight because as the 2022 debate challenge continues, Donnie just couldn't help himself. He's got to get back in the ring. So tonight... We're going to be debating endogenous retroviruses, um, and I'm hoping that everybody here knows what those are. If you don't, uh, these ERVs are just DNA sequences uh, that are present in germlines of non-viral organisms. That's important. So they either resemble a virus or can come from a virus, and they're estimated to be anywhere around 8% of the genomes. The topic is going to have uh, big implications for the ongoing creation evolution debate. So uh, with that out of the way, the debate tonight is whether or not these DNA elements are enough to support the of evolution, the idea that common descent is true. So he's going to have the, a little bit of bird proof tonight. He's going to take the positive. He's going to try to definitively show that there that is able to explain these ERVs to the same degree that common descent can. So. In this case, Donnie's going to have to show that ERVs either do not support common descent at all or that there is another theory, namely creation, that can plausibly account the existence of these ERVs. So <clears throat> get ready. This is going to be a good debate. So pretty cool. These guys are no rookies. They said almost 100 debates. Snake's no stranger. I know a lot of you guys out there know them. So uh, uh, let's give the debaters some grace in the chat. We don't need to be attacked these men personally there's no need for that as uh the mob will be you know ridding the chat of any relevant babble so as for the format we're going to do 12 minute openings for both guys um they're going to have eight minute rebuttals they're going to do around a 30 minute discussion specific to erv five minute closings and whatever time is less we'll, we'll, we'll try to wrap it up around two hours but uh whatever time is left well we'll save for q a so with that, I hear Taylor's going to be going first. Is that right, guys? All yeah, right. maybe we will. Um, we can do a couple intros before the opening statements. If you want, Snake, you can kind of uh, give the audience a little rundown on who you are and your channel. Brandon, I, I think it might have improved, but you were kind of glitching there a little bit for about a minute. Uh, but it looks like it's it, it's improved. Or, or was that just on my end, Snake? Was it, was it uh, pitching for you a little bit too? Yeah, for a second, but it wasn't too bad. Okay, okay. So I think we're good. And yeah, Snake, if you wanted to give a, a brief intro, you know, who, who are you, a little bit about your channel, so on and so forth. Yeah, so uh, I uh, am a molecular cellular developmental biology student, and uh, my channel is Snake Was Right. And it's all, it's basically about uh, various topics, but the central theme is kind of, well, the name is derived from the uh, biblical serpent, but the theme shares 
uh, a common ancestry, if you will, uh, with that same story, and which is basically that uh, knowledge is worth the cost, or knowledge is always the best, uh, the best way forward. So, um, and knowledge of good and evil is a good thing, I think. So, um, and that kind of applies to a lot of things that I'm thinking about, uh, not just scientific, but uh, moral and political. And I do get, I do take um, inconvenient political stances uh, that don't necessarily align with the stereotype of an atheist, uh, things like that and such. And um, yeah, but I have a strong background in science. So, and that's what we're going to tackle tonight. Okay, much appreciated there, uh, Taylor. Uh, for me, I'm Donnie, as, as everybody knows, or you may know me as Standing for Truth. Although I uh, started this ministry several years ago, we now have, have a team, uh, Team Standing for Truth. So uh, I'm excited for this. I believe this is uh, formal debate number 98 for myself. I know Snake has had a ton of debates as well. And I specifically like debating these types of topics. You know, the, the more challenging topics, I've had uh, plenty of debates on ERVs, chromosome 2 fusion, Neanderthal phylogenetics, you know, those, those types of topics that deal with uh, arguments from the evolutionist side that they would say essentially preclude biblical ancestry or young earth creation. So I like tackling the tough topics and tonight is endogenous retroviruses. So I... Very much look forward to this. So that, that that's my intro, and uh, I'll hand it over to Brandon, and I guess we can kind of get into some openings. Excellent intro. So like I said, we'll start with 12-minute openings, and uh, whenever you're ready, Taylor, I'll go ahead and start the clock for you. Yeah, all right. Um, so yeah, we had a brief explanation of ERVs. They are uh, identifiable by uh, certain ge viral genes that... Um, are part of them and they insert into the genome. That's how they reproduce. Sometimes they'll insert into the gametes or reproductive cells and thus everything in the surviving lineage of those reproductive cells will have these ERVs. So you can essentially trace who's related from that. And um, the basic idea is that we share so many retroviruses in uh, the exact same locations of the exact same genes, which are also in similar locations as uh, chimpanzees and other apes. Um, just one viral group, uh, HERVWs, I think, uh, have about 205 out of 211 similarities. Uh, and Again, that's just one virus group. There are several of them. Um, and the basic idea is that since there are only so many places for these uh, viruses to insert, uh, first of all, the, the likelihood that it's going to insert into a gamete is very unlikely in the first place. Uh, and then you have to have the specific species of virus um, and specific strain of that species and um, inserting 
in the same location of the same genome in two separate animals, uh, humans and chimps. Um, even the, and we do have very similar uh, number of similarities with other apes and monkeys, and those same similarities uh, create nested hierarchies, which uh, look exactly like the same nested hierarchies that are um, produced by other genomic analyses and by anatomical analyses. And so this, uh, by on its own, indicates um, a common ancestry. Um, but as I started off talking about the uh, the likelihoods of these things happening in two separate animals are inconceivably high. And, you know, it could be as high as 5.8 times 10 to the uh, 1,418th. Um, I'm sure that number will be disputed a little bit, but basically the lowest you can get it is still an astronomical number up to like uh, three times 10 to the, in the sixties, which is still, I don't know what that would be. That's like uh, somewhere between like quintillions and Google. Um, Google is like a number with a hundred zeros after it. Um, so it's just an incomprehensibly high number. And the only way that you could get around this uh, indicating common ancestry as if God put them there, except they are viral infections. So this would be look really uh, bad for the idea of intelligent design because God's updating the system with a really um, inconvenient way to update the system, um, and a and for some reason he's updating both chimps and humans in the same way, in a really inconvenient way, in a very unlikely way astronomically unlikely um so there's there's really no way to get around the fact that these are inherited and the the layout of the suite of viruses viral uh remnants is exactly the same and could not happen unless it was inherited by a common ancestor and so that's that's where we're at so I will see the rest of my time to discussion. All right. Thanks for that intro, Taylor. Looks like you had about seven minutes to spare, so we can add that to the end. Uh, for now, we'll hand it over to Donnie for his intro. And whenever you're ready, Donnie, start on your uh, on your first word there. Go ahead. Okay, much appreciated. And let me just get my screen shared here. Brandon, I think there are some people in the chat just asking who they tag for questions. So that'll be uh, Brandon at, at Brandon for your questions. <clears throat> okay. So let me get my PowerPoint up here. And let me know when... How's that look? Coming in, Brandon? Audio, everything? Looks epic. <laughs> yes, the epic showdown. Okay, let me get my timer going as well.
I was writing things down like crazy there and time flies by. Okay. So 12 minutes. All right. The epic showdown endogenous retroviruses, ancient viral infections, or created units of DNA function. This is my roughly debate number 97. And I look forward to this discussion. So what exactly are herbs or endogenous retroviruses? An herb is a stretch of DNA found in your DNA that according to evolutionary theory, and as uh, Taylor pointed out in his opening statement, got there when one of your ancestors was infected by a retrovirus. What is a retrovirus? A retrovirus is a special type of virus that inserts its genetic material directly into a cell's DNA. Right here, what is an endogenous retrovirus? They are transmitted vertically, right, rather than horizontally through the germline and are thus inherited by a successive generation in a Mendelian manner. Reverse transcriptase. This is important right here to understand when it comes to this topic. Okay, because retroviruses, however, use a slower, stealthier approach. After entering the cell, the retrovirus uses an enzyme called reverse transcriptase to turn its RNA into DNA before making its way to the nucleus. Once in the nucleus, it inserts its DNA into the host's genome. Now, when these retroviral genes make their way into sperm and egg cells, they can become a permanent part of a species genome. Proponents of common descent, like Snake was right here, will frequently claim the existence of these herb sequences are irrefutable evidence for common ancestry, since they can essentially act as a historical record of infection suffered by our past ancestors. And I've got notes here, Snake pointed out that essentially there is no way, no way around this for the creationist. Uh, essentially, they'll say herbs, the existence of, of these shared herb sequences across various taxa precludes separate ancestry. So uh, this is going to be a fun discussion. Now, these uh, small pieces of DNA found in the genome are recognized by various signatures. These signatures reflect similarities found in exogenous retroviruses. And because we share these ERV sequences with the primates, as Taylor went over in his opening statement, we must have inherited, this is their only conclusion, these from a common ancestor in the distant past. Proponents of common descent essentially believe endogenous retroviruses are uh, endogenous retroviruses are um, inherited are, are the ancient remnant. Here we go. Ancient remnants of past viral infections that have integrated into the genomes of living organisms, and that's why in my uh, opening slide, the question is: Are these really the ancient uh, remnants of past viral infections, or are they created units of DNA? function. They assert that these ERV sequences are clearly the remnants of viruses. They don't question it. To them, there is no debate. When we look to the properties of the ERV sequence, we can see that they are found in retroviruses. Evolutionists will also point to, and uh, Taylor mentioned this in, in his opening statement as well, they'll point to the nested hierarchy that these sequences fall into. And, and we'll definitely be discussing that uh, specific line of argumentation as well. 
And again, herbs that are shared across species are evidence for common ancestry to the evolutionists. Now, I do want to go over uh, kind of some of the details and, and some of the basics before I uh, continue into kind of the meat of this of this topic, as it, it is my goal for people to be able to follow tonight's debate and at the end of it all, see exactly why herbs are not really good evidence for common descent. And as a matter of fact, they are amazing evidence for biblical creation, as we are going to see. But more specifically, the design diversity model. Now, when a retrovirus becomes a permanent part of a species DNA, according to the evolutionists, it becomes an endogenous retrovirus. This is important to understand. Scientists call it endogenous because it is inside of us from birth. A retrovirus is not passed, passed on genetically or vertically, is referred to as endogenous. If, if it's passed on vertically, it would be referred to as endogenous. But if it's passed on horizontally, we're looking at that which is exogenous, okay? And it is the retrovirus, as I pointed out, that is passed down genetically that we would refer to as endogenous. And that's what we're discussing here, here tonight because the organism will be born with this viral DNA. Now, the human genome contains thousands of herb sequences. As I touched on earlier, these stretches of DNA match sequences found in retroviruses. And to the evolutionists, this is why there is no question, as, as Taylor pointed out in his opening statement, that these are indeed the ancient remnants of uh, past viral infections that have been passed down essentially. And uh, the question is though, how do we know for sure genes with similar sequences to virus genes actually came from viruses? And again, to the evolutionists like uh, Taylor here, it's the important properties of the herbs themselves that tell us these DNA elements actually originated from retroviruses. Notice on this specific slide, the structure of herbs match modern retroviruses, for example, HIV. On both ends of the retroviral DNA will be two identical sequences known as LTRs or long terminal repeats. In between the LTRs, we find the GAG the pole, which codes for the reverse transcriptase we were talking about earlier, and the ENV or envelope protein, which codes for the envelope that makes up the body of the virus. These structures are common in herbs and retroviruses. Remember, again, it's important. Herbs are assumed by the evolutionists to be the ancient remnants of past viral infections. Evolutionists consider these to be genetic fossils that point us to common descent. Advocates of common ancestry would say that the chances, and Taylor uh, pointed this out in his opening statement, that the chances of two herbs being inserted at the exact same location in separate organisms are very small. They will argue that the chance of a human and a chimpanzee being infected in the exact same spot by the same specific type of virus is far less than one in 10 million. And to them, as Taylor put it, this is highly unlikely. The more shared herb sequences then that we find, the more unlikely it becomes that these were inserted what? Inserted independently. Okay, so in a nutshell, why do evolutionists believe herbs are a good line of evidence for common descent? One, the sharing of similar herbs at similar locations in different genomes, plus the nested hierarchical distribution of herbs themselves. Two, the properties of the herb itself. We covered that. And three, the examination of shared mutagenic discrepancies between the long terminal repeats of LTRs 
of shared herbs, essentially the structure itself, okay, uh, that also form a nested pattern of distribution across various organisms. So here's some important questions we have to answer. Why are there herb sequences shared between the genomes of organisms? And two, if viral-like sequences in the genomes are, of organisms are functional, which I am going to argue is the fact today, why do they bear similarity to viral genetic material? So as we know, the entire junk DNA uh, paradigm has been overturned essentially, which is um, confirming evidence for the design diversity hypothesis, which suggests that God would have uh, front-loaded the original created kinds, this includes Adam and Eve, with... Um, created diversity, okay, created nuclear heterozygosity, essentially, as well as functional DNA elements, such as these herb sequences, pseudogenes, ALU sequences, so on and so forth. So as you can see here, pseudogenes necessary to sustain healthy life processes in the cell, line signs, introns allow for alternative splicing, herbs. Herbs are what we're focusing on today. So uh, they function now in antiviral uh, function, tumor suppression, gene regulation. We are going to uh, get into all of that today. Now, the question is, why do herb sequences resemble viral genetic material? And this is a common response from the evolutionist after we show them just how functional and essential these retroviral-like elements are. And we have an easy answer. Okay, one of the major functional roles of these viral-like elements, these herb sequences, is that they have a purpose in the innate immune system. They play an antiviral role. They're important DNA elements that work greatly in the immune system of their host. The way they me mechanistically exert their antiviral effect has to do with their sequence similarities to viral material. Without the specific nature of these herb sequences, they could not do the important job that they do. Thank God they resemble viruses. Thank God they have similar properties to exogenous retroviruses. Their functional roles depend on these similarities. This is not evidence that they are the ancient remnants of viral infections. No, the properties of an, e of, of an herb sequence is necessary in light of their essential roles in aiding in the immune system and fighting off viral infections. In my last two minutes here, I want to go over some of the, the, the more uh, amazing functions found in these types of sequences. It has recently been reported that herbs can act as DNA regulatory elements, as long non-coding RNAs, and as triggers in the innate immune system. Okay, and this isn't just creationists making this up. Notice this, from the secular literature, herbs, H-E-R-V-S, human-specific herbs, appear to play important roles in physiology, fetal development, and human evolution. Notice this, if the accidental, notice this, to the evolutionists, it's all an accident, right? Blind chance. Infection of a mammalian ancestor by an exogenous retrovirus had never occurred. The placenta and the mammals that produce it, including humans, would have never existed. Beneficial role of human endogenous retroviruses. They, uh, it has been suggested as mediators of normal biological processes such as cellular differentiation and regulation of gene expression. And in my last 40 seconds here, I mean, we could, we could go over uh, function after function. Here's, here's the one that I was specifically referring to earlier, how endogenous retroviruses protect us from viral infections. They not only regulate cellular immune activation, but may even directly target invading viral pathogens. 
And that's exactly why they look the way they do, because this is necessary in light of this one of many, many functional roles, which points us to the design diversity hypothesis. And I'll wrap it up there as I've got one second left, and we will touch on the, some more of that evidence a little bit later. Thanks so much. Excellent intros, gentlemen. I'm sure that's going to raise a lot of questions, uh, if not within the audience alone amongst you guys. So at this point, we can move on to the rebuttal stage. Uh, we're going to do eight minutes apiece for that whenever you're ready, Taylor. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we heard a lot about uh, how URVs contain beneficial functions and therefore they had to have been designed, um, but this is not exclusively expected by creationism. So one of the ways that, uh, for example, ERVs can help in cancer suppression is, well, one, it's kind of a double-edged sword because the, they actually can cause cancer. Um, some of them cause cancer and don't help at all. Some of them cause cancer and then help our immune system identify cancer because they're producing viral antibodies, which the body has, um, I mean, depending on the age of the uh, virus of origin, our bodies may have already been used to these viruses for thousands, even millions of years. So the antibodies are easily identifiable by the immune system. And so I guess um, to kind of recap, uh, an ERV could interrupt certain uh, genes, which can lead to a higher susceptibility of cancer. But then those cancer cells that are expressing that uh, virus now look like virus-infected cells, and so our immune system can kill it. And so, of course, that can work out accidentally um, pretty easily. It's a it seems pretty obvious how that's kind of a self-canceling property of uh, a, a cancer-causing element that can also tag itself as uh, something other than human. So the immune system often doesn't understand that cancer cells uh, need to be killed uh, because they have the same proteins as all your other cells. So the immune system can't tell the difference. Um, and so if there's some foreign element that is causing the cancer, then it's more likely that your immune system is also going to recognize that foreign element. So it, it it's completely understandable. Um, it's not like a wild, co like convenient coincidence. It's just, it's very obvious that your body would recognize it as a foreign element. Um, so just the mere fact that it has a beneficial function does not really tell us anything about whether it was created or it was infected. Um, but the structure of it can tell us whether it was infected because it, uh, the ERVs contain elements that are completely unnecessary in, uh, from an intelligent design perspective to insert into the genome. So, you wouldn't need uh, the pro gag and uh, and the ENV genes uh, because you you could just incorporate those genes into uh, the normal genome and put them in an exon and 
they would get uh, translated just as our normal proteins do. Um, and those could trigger viral antibodies. Um, and you also wouldn't need, uh, and from an intelligent design perspective, it's also a terrible design because a lot of these ERVs are interrupting genes, um, which can cause cancer. So, um, so basically the functions that these ERVs take are going to be infection related, immune related, um, and gene regulation related, which is exactly how retroviruses function as they infect us. So none of these beneficial functions are, are unexpected or conflict with the idea that they are historical infections or how biochemistry works in general. Um, viruses and infections aren't inherently bad for you. In fact, you could not survive without, uh, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's in the uh, thousands of species that infect your gut that you can't digest without or that infect your skin that keeps uh, away um, worse uh, infections. Um, and as uh, a parasitic or infectious uh, pathogenic or a pathogen, um, they don't want to kill their host. So the most successful pathogens actually work with the host. Um, same with the symbiotic uh, biological relationships. Um, you can suck the blood out of your host, but if it kills it, you run out of your food supply. If you're hardly noticeable or if you actually provide some kind of benefit, then your host is actually going to want you around. Um, one example is the birds that, uh, they're not exactly parasitic, but they clean out the teeth of the crocodiles. The crocodiles don't eat the birds that hang out in their mouths because they clean out their teeth. So these kind of relationships can develop naturally. And, um, and it's, going back to ERVs, it's not very, well, it's not, <laughs> it's close to zero, the probability that, um, in fact, in one of my calculations, my calculator literally couldn't calculate that low and just gave me a zero for the like the likelihood. Um, so the idea that God would put these things in our genomes that were, um, not in the ideal locations, but they were also in the exact same locations as other species. And the fact that he would use an like an update to an operating system instead of just put them in our genomes in the first place is really odd um, and doesn't jive with uh, intelligent design at all because in fact, we can come up with better designs. Um, so, the fact that they're in the same locations does indicate that it was um, a historical infection shared by two different uh, species, um, not because of the similar sequence, but because, well, they're identified by the similar sequence, but again, similar species, similar location of a similar gene. Well, exact, almost exactly the same. Um, and it's the fact that uh, this isn't going to happen 
just by chance. Um, I had another point, but I, I derailed my train of thought. I'll get it in a minute. But the uh, the idea that God would use uh, um, would use ERVs to infect us is even if He's putting them in the correct location or what whatever, even if there's not a better intelligent design, ERVs are one of the worst delivery mechanisms for. Uh, well, retroviruses are one of the worst delivery mechanisms for updates to genetics um, because they're not necessarily going to get into the gametes. And we even have uh, therapeutics that are based on retroviruses, but the fact that they're so unlikely to get into the reproductive cells is a major problem for uh, this intelligent design uh, method. I think that should be about eight minutes. You are exactly correct, man. Eight minutes. Pretty good job. A lot of good points there, man. I think you brought a little more heat in the rebuttal than you did in your opening, huh? <laughs> All right, we're going to hand it that over was to planned. What's that? That was part of the plan. There you go. I, I think we that. all kind of know like the topic. So Turn up the heat on him, man. He needs it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, here we go. Uh, let me start my timer, eight minutes. And the openings were brief overviews, and here we go. Let's get into the fun, because I am pumped. So um, Taylor's arguments here, essentially in the opening statement and the rebuttal itself, boil down to a starting point and basic assumption that these viral-like sequences are really the leftover remnants of, of past viral infections. Just so stories aren't going to show us empirically how non-functional endogenous retroviral-like sequences can go from something that is non-functional to critically functional in determining cell types, aiding in the immune system, embryological development, and so on, okay? Because he pointed out um, that it's, it's it's not just one beneficial function, okay? He, um, what I've written down is, is he said, you know, it, it, a beneficial function, one single beneficial function can certainly come about through co-option or evolution. It, it's not just one. Okay, there are massive amounts of uh, ERV-like sequences that, that are aiding in, in tr transcription in, in so many important functional roles. And something important to note is that retrotransposons, okay, they are uh, mobile genetic elements, and we know that they're often referred to as jumping genes because they can actually move around the genome, jumping from one location to the next in, in the DNA itself. They can literally move from one chromosomal location to another. And the ability of, of a retrotransposon to move around the genome allows for what? It allows for genetic variation when mobilized. So here's another important uh, functional role of, of these various classes of retrotransposons. And that's why there's, there's a creationist model called the uh, VIGE hypothesis, which stands for, that acronym stands for uh, Variation Inducing Genetic Elements. And the fact is, and in, in what this model proposes essentially is that a lot of these bad viruses have actually originated uh, in endogenous retroviral sequences within the genome rather than outside. 
And we can actually make viruses in our genome. This is an important point because in our cells, we make all of the parts that make that viruses make. We have all the ingredients and properties to make viruses. We make protein shells, we make DNA, we make RNA, we have DNA and RNA copying enzymes. It is possible that many viruses came from within the genome rather than outside. And this had to be the case anyways, because a retrovirus requires a host to replicate. So what came first, the virus or the, ho of the host? It makes sense and, and it's, it solves this, this dilemma and paradox that evolutionists face in terms of the origin of, of viruses in general, specifically retroviruses. I'd like to ask Snake, you know, what's your explanation for the origin of, of these retroviruses that require a host in the first place? Okay, so it is possible that many viruses came from within the genome. They were made from cellular parts. As our cells are packaging things in various different ways, a few accidental changes during the packaging process can actually make a bad virus. And it sounds like viruses came from the human genome rather than, than vice versa. So his, uh, his response here in, in my notes where he says that um, a, a lot of these ERV elements are detrimental, cancer-causing, disease-causing, well, that's exactly what we would expect through uh, mutation accumulation, through accidental errors in the genome may result in uh, fully working endogenous retroviral-like sequences, altering to the point where they may cause uh, disease and may cause um, cancers of, of all sorts. But the fact is, one of their main roles is the fact that they play an antiviral role. And because of this, they require what he was saying aren't required, like the gag gene, the pole gene, the ENV, okay, the LTRs. No, these are all functional properties of the overall endogenous retroviral unit, okay? And there's a lot of latent genetic information in our genome. We understand this. And many of these retrotransposons actually have a gene promoter in them. And so, so if, if they're stuck in, let's say, one place in the DNA, and within this place in the gene, they can turn on a gene, okay? They regulate. And if they move, that gene gets turned off. So you, ha you have these signatures of integration, not because they are being integrated from the outside, but because they are actually moving around within the genome itself, okay? So if this mobile element moves, that gene gets turned off. And what this tells us is that as jumping genes are popping in and out into the genome in different places, they can literally turn things on and turn things off. This is evidence for forward thinking, which uh, points us back to a forward thinker. And I wanna share screen and kind of just demonstrate a lot of what I'm saying here in, in the number of papers that, that I have made for everybody. Uh, right here, ERVs are retrotransposons, a type of transposable element that spreads throughout the genome via a copy and paste mechanism. And uh, there's a different class that can do it through a, a cut and paste mechanism, okay? Retrotransposition. Retro this capacity allows ERVs to make copies of themselves that in turn insert themselves elsewhere in the genome. And that's why you'll often uh, see them being referred to as mobile elements, all right? The ability of transposons to increase genetic diversity. This isn't coming from creationists. Here's an article in, um, you can find it on Nature. Together with the ability of the genome to inhibit most transposable element activity results 
in a balance that makes transposable elements an important part of evolution and gene regulation in all organisms that carry these sequences. So again, jumping genes. And here's something that's interesting about the function of of herbs is that much of the evidence for the function of teas comes from the growing realization that many transposons are highly conserved among distantly related taxonomic groups. So if what we're looking at is high levels of con conservation, that would mean they must be there for a reason if they're not being hit with all of these mutations that essentially could be uh, damaging because maybe we're looking at a sequence that's uh, nothing more than genomic leftovers, ge genetic baggage. No, sequence conservation suggests functionality. And um, this is an important point, guys. Herbs frequently have important immune functions and they should not be presumed to be junk DNA. This defeats both the junk DNA or junk herb argument against the design of the genome. It also challenges those who want to use the supposed junk status of herbs as an argument for common ancestry. So the last thing I want is that the LTRs, okay, they're there for a reason. They have the capacity to exert uh, regulatory influence as both a promoter and enhancer of cellular genes. Uh, we went over the fact that uh, what we could be looking at in terms of bad viruses is uh, viral um viral escapees. And last thing I'll say is, is this argument from co-option, it's imagination. Okay, I'm going to end it here with a simple question for Snake, I guess, as, as we move in, into the open discussion. Uh, after this, he can either choose to answer it first or not. Show me empirical evidence in a lab, a technical paper today. It's not just one or two uh, functional roles in these herb sequences. Show me a non-functional herb uh, sequence going from non-functional to uh, something critically functional in the genome and that's uh that's eight minutes so i'll yield there excellent perfect timing so uh now we're going to go into this 30-minute discussion and i guess we can kind of tail off right where donnie left it if you want to snake do you want to address that question you got anything else you want to bring up well um i guess i i would uh offer a, like a slight correction so um so the the gag and the envelope proteins are potentially useful. They're not necessarily useful. Um, uh, but the, the pole section and the long terminal repeats are basically um, just uh, virus specific. And so the, um, the human, the human genome is capable of translating the gag or pole regions, or I, uh, sorry, the ENV regions um, independently of uh, of uh, the uh, LTRs, long terminal repeats, and the uh, the pole, uh, which is the reverse transcriptase, right? And um, so so there are markers that show that these things are in fact viral, and so um, and are not necessary as intelligent design elements so like do you do you accept that some of these uh ervs are in fact of viral origin well some interesting points that you brought up so to to kind of work um from from the, your first point is that yes when we look to these erv elements and the properties essentially that uh, make up the herb sequence. 
right? The structure of it, the LTRs on, on either side, your, your gag pole and envelope protein, essentially. Okay. These are uh, characteristics and signatures of exogenous retroviruses. Okay. They have similarities, but um, that's what's so fascinating about the structure of the ERV sequence itself is the fact that one of their, their roles, Taylor, is they have the ability to protect against the exogenous retroviruses that supposedly they are the result of, right? You have this uh, viral infection and uh, essentially it gets passed on because it invades uh, the germ cells and it's, it's passed on vertically rather than horizontally. And so it becomes endogenous. It, it comes from within. Okay, the offspring are going to have this viral DNA in every single one of their cells. And essentially, that's where these ERVs came from, according to the evolutionary story. But the ability of these ERV sequences to actually protect against this, okay, the fact that ERVs block the ability of the exogenous retrovirus to infect in the first place and to, be, and to become an endogenous retrovirus tells me that, and, and you can see this in a number of papers I can screen share later, uh, for sake of time right now, I won't, they uh, perform viral mimicry. And they require the specific structure and properties, okay, including the gag, the pole gene, the, the ENV, in order to um, carry out this, this ability. And uh, another ability as well is uh, involved in, in tumor suppression, where they also, we can get into that a little bit later, where uh, the structure and property of uh, the ERV sequence itself, these similarities are uh, necessary, they're a, a required design feature to carry out the job that it does in disrupting uh, retroviral insertions and in um, tumor suppression. So I, I don't think the properties that make up the ERV or ERV that are also similar to exogenous retroviruses is a problem for the design hypothesis. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Go ahead. Well, um, yeah, I definitely wanna get into the uh, topic of discussion um but as for the question are you do you accept that there are retroviral infections that result in these ervs even if you're not accepting any of the beneficial ones you're well that is a good question and it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that an exogenous retrovirus can invade our cells and invade in, in just the right way and in the right spots for it to be uh, passed on vertically, essentially. So it, it doesn't seem to be out of the realm of, of possibility. So how many uh, have actually occurred, have gotten past one of these functional roles of, of the ERV sequences in general to kind of prevent that and stop that? Um, I'm not sure because as far as I know, we don't really have any observable evidence, unless you can present that, where we have... Um, endogenous retroviruses. We have a new uh, virus infecting and then becoming endogenous and fixed within, within the population. Because from my understanding and respond to this, um, what we're looking at is genomic fossils to the evolutionists. And so this is a historical record of common descent. But we're not actually seeing the um, endogenization, I guess you could say, occurring today. Um, go ahead. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, like, how would you tell the difference between a retrovirus mimic and a legitimate 
uh, um, endogenous retrovirus. Well, right. That's a good point. But because, well, if I um, could yeah, add a little bit more. Um, so we do know what retroviruses look like when they infect cells and they have this exact same structure. And um, the, the only difference would be that they occur in gametes, um, which are reproductive cells. And as long as that doesn't kill off the uh, fetus, which is one form of selection, if, if the mutation or the um, infection occurs in a highly inconvenient place, that thing's just not going to even be born to uh, pass on its genetics. So, but yeah, these, we use retroviruses for therapeutics. So we know how they look when they infect cells. It's just a difference of which cell they infect. So what I, I get, going back to the question I asked, is there a way to differentiate a virus mimic and a legitimate ERV? Right. So that's a good question. I would say the majority of what we're looking at in terms of these, um, you know, quote unquote, genomic fossils that uh, evolutionists such as yourself look to and compare across different uh, groups, different species that uh, fall within a nested hierarchical pattern, as well as the uh, mute mutations that occur in, in these LTRs, these LTR uh, elements. I would say that the vast majority, if not all of those, are created units of, of DNA function. They are these uh, variation-inducing genetic elements that, that were front-loaded. And, and a way we can tell is whether or not they, they are functional. That's a direct prediction of the design diversity hypothesis that if God front-loaded various types of functional units, in living organisms, that would include these ERV sequences, ALU sequences, we would uh, we would predict function and we would predict a lot of function, not just one or two. So when we find an ERV sequence that is functional in, let's say, embryological development or um, uh, beneficial in, like right here, human endogenous retroviruses, have recently been suggested as mediators of normal biological processes such as cellular differentiation and regulation of gene expression. So I would say, okay, confidently, this is a created unit of, of DNA function, given it, its functional role. And uh, for you to demonstrate that, no, this is the ancient remnant of a past viral infection, you would show how it's actually possible empirically for this type of uh, DNA unit to become functional in determining cell types, gene expression, embryological development in the immune response. So that would be my uh, criteria is looking, looking for function. And if we have an ERV sequence, here's the last thing I'll say and then take as long as you want. If we have an ERV sequence, okay, that is, is functional, let's say in, in the immune system. And then we have another ERV sequence that maybe we haven't really tested, so we don't know what the function is yet, but they still bear the same signatures and similarities. I would say, okay, this is, um, I would predict this is also a functional ERV element, but what's its exact function? We still have to uh, test that, which, which is nice because this is where testable predictions um, that are falsifiable uh, come into play, you know? Um, so re respond to anything, but again, I, I, I'd like to ask you, given, given the criteria, what would be your best, um, example of 
a, a non-functional retroviral-like element or sequence going from non-functional to something functional in, in the immune system, in, in embryological development. I mean, that paper that I showed in, in my uh, either opening or rebuttal, uh, the authors, which are secular, they admitted that without this endogenous retrovirus, we wouldn't be able to reproduce. It's required for embryological uh, development. So Snake, go ahead. So uh, to kind of correct something, retroviruses have function from the moment of infection. So that you're never going to find anything that goes from non-function to functional. You might have kind of a change of function or a, a shifting of responsibility, but um, um, we can talk about that uh once we once we're fully on the subject of function but so it looks like you're saying that they're identical in structure and you can't really tell based on their genetics whether they're from an infection or not it's just whether or not it has a beneficial biological function is that how you're telling the difference i would say the criteria um in terms of determining what is a created unit of DNA function versus, versus what, what is a, a retrovirus. For example, it, when we look to the, the, the Phoenix virus experiment, okay, that, that's a paper you've cited before. That's a great experiment where they uh, took cells in, in a Petri dish and uh, subjected them to uh, various mutations. Uh, they, they produced a virus. Well, that goes back to what I was saying in my uh, rebuttal, that uh, one creationist hypothesis titled the uh, variation inducing genetic element hypothesis, which suggests that uh, retroviruses, exogenous retroviruses, have originated from functional ERV-like sequences. And at that point, they can escape the genome, cross species, and of course, become uh, damaging, disease-causing. And I think that has to be the case anyways, the nature of, of retroviruses. So if we're looking at what you would say is, is a genetic fossil, a dead virus, that is what I'm saying is, is a created unit of, of DNA function. If we're looking at an exogenous retrovirus, then I would say that is what um, probably originated from the, these functional ERV sequences. And I'd like to see where a, a retrovirus, an exogenous retrovirus like, uh, like HIV assists in embryological development or determining cell types. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not aware of any research suggesting that, that these retroviruses, before they integrate and are passed down vertically and become endogenous, I'm not aware, aware of any papers that suggest that they already uh, contain the necessary information to assist in, in embryological development. So uh, go ahead, Snake. Um, so you did say that it is possible for some, for at least one uh, beneficial function to come, come about by infection and co-option. Um, so well, I wouldn't say co-option. Um, okay. I mean, that's what you said, but I just want to clarify. I don't want to say that it's impossible. I'm not going to sit here and say, no, it, it's impossible for an exogenous retrovirus to infect a, a germ cell, enter a sperm or egg, and then be passed down vertically. And the offspring now has an endo. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not going to sit here and go on record saying that, that that's impossible. Maybe it's, it's possible. If, if one of their roles, these ERV sequences, is to prevent that, 
well, we know we have DNA repair enzymes that, that are uh, formulated to prevent mutations, but mutations still occur. So I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's not like we have overwhelming evidence in the lab or a series of technical papers showing this happening. I mean, you can you can present if you can present that, I'd like to see it. But we're, we don't see that as far as I know. Go ahead. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, as, I mean, as far as uh, cells that are infected with retroviruses, they can reproduce and they still have the retroviral elements in them. Um, and so as far as co-opting a function, like I said, not all viruses are going to be harmful. Uh, and some of them are going to be able, are going to be harmful in the right way. So there are, certain genes that we could benefit from having down-regulated. And if the virus is infects those genes, then that's going to be beneficial because it's damaging a bad gene or a, a gene that might be, need to be turned down or interrupted in some way. So... Um, yeah, what is, what's your response there? Well, a few responses and, and a few questions I would have is if if what we're looking at here, then, you know, the, these thousands and thousands of, of IRV sequences that essentially are the ancient remnants of, of past viral infections, okay, that have been passed down over millions of years. How in the world did, did these ancestors survive to, to reproduce, especially this this invasion of deleterious <laughs> exogenous retroviruses how, how did they survive this this invasion of all of these viruses how was this not deleterious to the point where um for one selection would just remove the infected group from the equation and two how, how would this result in, in fixation since we're looking at fixed IRV-like IRV sequences? Uh, go ahead, Snake, if you want to answer those. Well, um, the first step, obviously, uh, we survive all the time, just, just as we are now, getting infected by all kinds of things. Um, uh, as far as deleterious ones, I uh, explained there is a selection filter where just like any any mutation if it's too detrimental to the organism it's not even going to gestate or it will uh, gestate badly and if it's born it will die soon after or not be able to reproduce um, so there is a selective filter for based on how harmful the uh inclusion of the virus is so i mean half of all pregnancies don't even um implant uh half of all fertilized eggs don't even implant and and uh there are i don't know how i think it's in the so like dozens of millions of sperm cells per ejaculate they're all going to have different mutations and potentially infections. So if the infection is bad, the sperm cell will be unfit. It won't even get to the egg. If somehow it gets to the egg, 
then it probably doesn't have an infection bad enough to slow it down. If it if the infection doesn't slow down the sperm cell, it might have a adverse effect on development, and thus that uh, genetic element will not be passed on. Um, as far as co-opting a function, there are we see this in a lot of different um, organisms where two different genetic elements or anatomical elements can serve the same function and they can lose one of these and get along fine because there's a redundancy there. So if, um, so if the ERV is providing a similar regulatory function as a regulatory function that the organism already has, it is now free to have that ERV mutate. And this, this happens a lot where ERVs it might be slightly harmful, but they we've we can uh, sequence them and see that they've lost some of the pathogenic elements of them, so that they're not not harmful. Um, or so it, if you if you have that redundancy, you can have mutations in either the ERV or the previous regulatory element, and you'll still have the same regulation. So there's no theoretical or functional barrier to the co-option of those ERVs, even as essential functions. Okay, so I'd want to respond to quite a bit there. First thing I'll say when it comes to the uh, answer to the question about how, how these species could essentially survive just mass invasion of virus after virus. I do believe it, unfortunately for the evolutionist, does require a lot of uh, just so storytelling. We know that the, the, this hypothetical invasion of viruses occurred millions of years ago in order for them to be passed on. And after the human to chimpanzee split, we have the, the similar herb sequences because they um the human line chimp line went different directions but but retained these endogenous retroviruses essentially but my biggest counter to that is is the paper that i showed earlier in my uh, rebuttal that demonstrates we're looking at a lot of conservation a, a lot of conserved sequences where um, these herbs uh, sequences herb elements haven't really been hit with a ton of mutations and so this would suggest and this was from a secular technical paper as well this would suggest that we're looking at genome-wide functionality essentially of, of these herb sequences now of course through mutations recombination and uh, other accidental changes um, these could destroy the, the functions of, of some of these herb sequences. Also, we know that a lot of these herb sequences are only functional. They're expressed during different stages of, of development, okay? And after they are expressed and, and essentially they do their job, they are uh, then turned off or, or suppressed in, in their function. So if we were to test that, let's say, in, in the life of a specific organism, if we were to test that, and even through genetic knockout, we were to snip it out and there was no immediate effect, well, that's because either one, we're looking at uh, redundancy, two, we're looking at an ERV sequence that is turned off, 
it's only expressed under certain conditions, certain environmental conditions, uh, when it comes to uh, tumor suppression or antiviral infection, they're only called upon essentially in, in light of those uh, circumstances. So there, there, there's a lot of herb sequences, unfortunately, that evolutionists would say are non-functional, but they haven't done enough, I would say, analyses or uh, even knockout experiments to know that for a fact, since we know for a fact that a lot of these herb sequences are only functional under certain um, conditions. And again, when it comes to the, uh, the, the co-option, you know, here, for example, far from being junk DNA, the pervasive retrotransposons that populate the genome have a powerful capacity to influence genes in chromatin. A new study demonstrates how the transcription of one such element, H-E-R-V-H, can modify, notice this, can modify the higher order 3D structure of chromatin during early primate development. Here's the last thing I'll say and then take as much time as you need, Taylor, okay? In the mouse genome, there's a certain class of retrotransposon that if you snip it out, Okay, you remove it, the mouse is developing, you remove this retrotransposon and the mouse stops developing, it dies. It's because again, it requires that functional retrotransposon to develop and live. Okay, so I don't think your answers here are adequate that retroviruses have some innate functionality that when they uh, infect, integrate and are passed on vertically, okay, through the germ cell lines, they can eventually become not just functional in, um, in a low functional sense, but literally critical. As in that one paper I showed earlier, demonstrated that no, if it wasn't for this herb sequence, there wouldn't be mammals. <laughs> it's literally required for the existence of mammals. So I don't think you're, you're adequately answering this question because to me, the question could be adequately answered with just a single technical paper that actually shows empirically in a lab, hey, listen, here's here's a, an ERV element that, that we thought was useless, but through a series of mutations or co-option events, you know, it, it went from something that was dead to something that is now critically functional in embryological development. Can you provide an, anything like that, uh, Taylor? And, and go ahead, take your time. Yeah, so they're not functionally dead when they infect they, they're functionally well there's a debate uh, over whether viruses are alive or not but the retrovirus as soon as it infects is functional all of its viral elements are functional to create viruses so basically to gain a function they have to parts of it have to die so that they're not viral and pathogenic but as you said, they can affect regulation. And that's really not hard to explain because mutations affect regulation all the time. Uh, uh, they can affect um, cellular uh, division. Um, and, and viruses do have self-regulatory elements in them. They It's not like once they're inside of your body, or once they've inserted into the genome, that they just continuously replicate and replicate and replicate. There are tons of diseases that can go dormant, and there are certain environmental conditions that will then trigger them to turn on. Um, and 
so they have a, an ability to interact with the cell, whether it's interrupting it or tagging it for um, being activated, um, which are not, they're completely unremarkable as far as uh, non-designed elements go. And like I said, if there's a redundancy there, the original function to that can be lost and it can look like, oh, the, the ERV was the only thing that was ever regulating this when it's perfectly capable of having just been a redundancy that is left over. Um, well, and yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to be listening, but I'm just going to grab something real quick. No worries. No worries. So again, the example that, that I pointed to where, where you have a class of retrotransposon that if knocked out, if removed, the organism stops developing, it, it dies. I mean, we're not just talking about the, the known properties or function, I guess you could say, of exogenous retroviruses, okay? The evolutionist is saying that these herb sequences that we see, where the debate lies, are these really the ancient remnants of, of past viral infections or created units of DNA function? You guys are the ones purporting. For example, um, I had a bunch of papers here up from, let's see if I can get to them real quick, from the secular literature, where the best you're going to get, for example, here, um, if in the past, HERVs were mistakenly considered as useless elements of the human genome, DNA junk, which they're admitting that in the past, this is what they assume. So one question I'll have, if you want to keep it to memory, is uh, do you have any technical paper or any um, example of an evolutionary uh, scientist predicting function before function was found? That's a question I'd be interested in, in hearing an answer to do. Today, some are recognized as conferring biological advantages. In fact, in some cases, HERV genomes have undergone a process of positive selection during evolution, being exploited by the host to benefit important physiological processes. This is, the this is a paper from 2020. This is the best you can find. I've read through dozens of papers, and they don't actually, they'll, they'll say, well, these are engines of evolution, positive selection, kind of like what, what you're doing. And... Um, Apologies if this sounds aggressive. I just think it's a lot of uh, fanciful storytelling, a lot of uh, informative gloss, and essentially imagination. Like just imagine, you know, an exogenous retrovirus that essentially is is infiltrating in 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 order to do damage to the host. Uh, the exogenous retroviruses we know today, like HIV, for example, nobody wants uh, that infection, right? And again, thank God, we're seeing it in these uh, populations of, of koalas, where these ERV sequences are actually now being called upon. And thank God for, for their structure and properties, the LTRs, the GAG, the pole, ENV, which the evolutionists, that's their best argument. They always say, like you're saying, why do they resemble exogenous retroviruses? They literally require these similarities. They require these signatures in order to do their job when it comes to fighting off bad viruses. They have to have that structure in the first place. And so the uh, VIGE hypothesis at least would say, okay, they look the way they do because one of their many functions is to fight off bad viruses. So the last thing I'll say, and, and then take your time, is I don't feel satisfied with, with the um, 
answers provided, not only by you, just in the papers that I'm reading, where it discusses these functional roles, I never actually see empirical evidence for how this co-option happened or how this evolution happened. They just say it did because positive selection, engines of evolution, so on and, and so forth. So, you know, obviously you, you can disagree with me, but I, I don't feel like an adequate answer has been provided to uh, how these incredibly important uh, functional roles can, can come about. Uh, Taylor, go ahead, take your time. Yeah, well, first of all, how much time do we have left? Brandon, you might be on mute. and I'm. Uh, you got the 30 minutes is up in 10 seconds, but we can add the extra seven minutes that uh, you didn't use in your opening. So if you guys want uh, the extra seven, you can have at it. Yes, please. Um, so um, as I said, uh, viruses are not necessarily bad for you um, or – they can, it, it's all completely context dependent. So they can be completely neutral. They could be, uh, in fact, uh, we use viruses to infect and kill cancer cells um, because we, they can be selective like that. Um, some viruses kill off bacteria, but don't infect humans. Um or viruses might have a disruptive effect on harmful uh, genes or mutations that we already have in us. Um, so the regulatory nature of retroviruses already explains it in any evolutionary way that they can regulate things. Um, the only thing, the, if there's a dependency there, this would seem to indicate that it was not uh, based on the, the evidence that it was an infection would seem to indicate that it was a part of a redundancy that we've lost. And we see that um, such as um, in there's a species of amoeba, which has a, a sister species. And there's one species of bacteria that infects both of them. One, one of the cousins is killed by the bacteria. It's pathogenic in them. The other will die without that same exact species of bacteria. And so there's very little difference between them, but now, but one of them, they're, they're the same biblical kind, but one is entirely dependent on something that it did not have before getting infected by it. So, and this is based on redundancies. So, it had something in its genome that was able to keep it alive before one of the uh, pathogenic bacteria infected the amoeba uh, spread throughout the population because it was not as pathogenic as a variant that it's related to. And, um, and then the amoebas that could tolerate these bacteria basically lost their original function and now you can't take the bacteria out without killing them but they originally had this function so we observe this process happening we know it's possible in in viral uh, regulation um so uh snake if i could as, 
yeah. I just wanted to make sure you answered the question and still continue on as long as you need. Um, one of the questions I, I asked in my last response was, did uh, evolutionary scientists predict function before function was found? Do you know the answer to that? Um, I, as far as the literature says, it's usually, uh, was, it was not known. So they, it's an investigation. They, they discovered viral elements. Uh, a lot of people assumed because it's an inactivated virus that it wouldn't be that important, but then we discovered that it was. So isn't that just I mean, retrofitting not, the data though? No, that's just investigating what, what it is. Like there's no, no one's claiming anything outside that it's like if, if we were investigating the genome, we find these elements that look like viruses and eventually we found out that some of them have uh, beneficial functions. So that's not, that's not retrofitting any data. The only thing that worked. Well, what would be if you could, are you, like if you could screen share or present us with uh, based on, on what you're saying, okay, what would be the best tactical paper or lab experiment that, that you can provide myself or, or anybody on the fence, let's say in the audience, that would would show us and uh, kind of make the light bulb go off where we're like, okay, okay, we can see how, because if you notice this paper here, HERVs appear to play important roles in physiology, fetal development, and human evolution. This is not a creationist paper, by the way. If the accidental, notice this, the accidental infection of a mammalian ancestor by exogenous retrovirus had never occurred, the placenta and the mammals that produce it, including humans, would never have existed. And I want the audience to pay close attention to that. Without this endogenous retroviral-like sequence, we couldn't exist. Humans would have never existed. These beneficial consequences can explain why these uh, HERVs have been fixed into the genome instead of being eliminated over, over the years. The most parsimonious explanation for me is, okay, these are necessary. These are essential. These were designed and created. But for you, I just see, you know, unfortunately, and I understand you'll disagree. I do see a lot of kind of just so storytelling, maybe this, maybe that. But why in 2022 don't we have a, a technical paper documenting some kind of lab experiment where this uh, endogenous retroviral-like element was, was subjected to a series of mutations or, or whatever that actually uh, led to a, a highly essential endogenous retrovirus? Um, yeah, go ahead. What would be your favorite technical paper just to, just to kind of throw at us uh, demonstrating what you're saying in terms of the co-option? Uh, you mentioned the Phoenix virus, uh, so uh, we can make them. We know that these uh, elements are uh, telltale signs of a viral infection. So at some point, yes, some regulatory function is beneficial. That's, that's well, what not did the Phoenix virus any... experiment demonstrate, though, for the audience sake? It demonstrated that it's a virus of viral origin. Well, firstly, so, how is that then, demonstrating their, their, the co-option of these uh, functional roles in embryological development? Well, we know that this is possible. Um, I can cite the, the, <laughs> the Amoeba's paper uh, that we know that um, redundancies with, like, with this type of thing occurs. Um, it's 
extremely rare. Like, like you said, there's one of these out of thousands of these. So, uh, it's not going to be easy to evolve this in a lab. Um, but we do know that they are viral elements. We do know that the result of an infection and we've kind of lost track of the fact that there are hundreds of these that are shared with chimps. So this is against, since we know that they're viruses, statistically impossible. Well, I, I wanted to, I, I just want to make sure that sweets. the audience, obviously I disagree with that. We don't know they're viruses. I, I think we've demonstrated that they're not. But, but I understand you, th you believe that we know they're viruses, but the only reason you conclude that is because of their properties, the, the structure, the LTRs, the gag, the pole, the Their NDMD. viral exclusive properties, right. But I've already pointed out that <laughs> the structure, the makeup, the properties of the ERV uh, sequence are required for one of their many, many roles, which is fighting off exogenous retroviruses, working in the immune. If they did not have these similarities to uh, extant retroviruses or exogenous retroviruses, they couldn't do their, their job. So I don't understand why you believe this is evidence that they're ancient remnants. No, so, of that would be, so that would be something like the envelope protein, but the rest of the telltale signs are not necessary because so, uh, you mentioned viruses being bad for us. We can't have an immune system unless we're exposed to viruses and bacteria. So our immune system literally needs examples for it to learn. Um, we produce antibodies that go after all kinds of things. And this is a process of miniature evolution is there's all it's called somatic <laughs> hypermutation produces tons and tons of different mutations. Uh, and then the ones that work survive and proliferate. And then that's the immune system that you work with going forward. And if you encounter more, um, there's that. And then you you say we, that these are if if I not could, retroviruses. Joe, if, I could. if I could, okay. I have to point out that no, every property of, of the, the unit, the ERV unit, for one, a lot of what we're looking at in terms of these sequences are just LTRs just functional stretches of, of DNA. You know, we only find very few full endogenous retroviral sequences. I think you understand that. But what, if you're looking at the LTRs, the GAG, the pole, the ENV, it, it's all functional for, for the unit, okay? It would be like saying, well, you know, a human no. being is, is not a functional unit. It just has some functional parts and other parts that are not functional. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. The ERV unit itself, is made up of properties or ingredients, I guess you could say, that are necessary for its functional roles, including the fact that they jump around retrotransposition. They they can jump around the genome, okay, yeah. leading to genetic diversity, turning genes on and off. They require their structure to even do that role. So I, I just wanted to say, I, I think you're wrong on that, uh, Snake. Go ahead. Uh, no, because... They, you don't require them to have retrotransposable elements. They stay in the same place. That's part of the reason that that's part of the whole argument because they're in the same place. If they were hopping around completely, that would... Well, they can move around. They, there's, there's class one and class two. They can either move around through a copy and paste mechanism or even a cut and paste. Yeah. They're transposed jumping but, genes, right? But the fact that they're found in the same locations is one of the pieces of evidence. So they're, 
that's not a functional element that you don't require it to jump around for it to express envelope proteins, which is, that's one of the ways that uh, the, it's beneficial to cancer is it starts producing uh, viral specific particles that the immune system can recognize, but it doesn't need an entire, uh, it doesn't need the LTRs to, to express those envelope proteins. Um, and in fact, the, the LTRs, LTRs have a different function. But as you said, not all of these are complete retroviral sequences anyway. They can, they have function and get along fine without the entire suite of retroviral tags. Right. A lot of what we're looking at in the genome are just LTRs. And notice here from PubMed, <clears throat> endogenous retroviral LTRs as promoters for human genes. In this review, we summarize known examples of LTRs that function as human gene alternative promoters, as well as the evidence that LTR exaptation has resulted in a pattern of novel gene expression. You can read through this all yourself. My hand and my foot and my heart and my lungs, okay, everything that makes up me, okay, the unit that is a human being has different functional roles, does different things, just like the ERVs made up of LTRs, or you just have uh, isolated or, or solo LTRs that are just functional uh, stretches of DNA, critical in, in, in um, mm -hmm. gene promotion, things like that. Either way, what we're looking at, regardless of the property, it, it's functional and, and necessary. And it contradicts this idea that, that these are the ancient remnants of, of viral infections. Again, I haven't really seen a, a t the Phoenix, Phoenix virus experiment. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. That just showed us exactly what we've been predicting, that viruses, retroviruses have originated from within the genome. So they subjected a, an endogenous retrovirus to, to a series of, of mutations and uh, revived a virus. Well, that's exactly what we're saying based on our um, VIGE hypothesis. So that doesn't work to answer the question. Uh, I just think this is a question that, that evolutionists really do struggle in, in explaining. And I understand why, you know, uh, go ahead. Uh, Nick, Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you go ahead and take the last word on that? Address what he said there, take your time and then we'll move into your guys' closings if you want. Yeah. So the entire suite of retroviral parts is not necessary for the beneficial function of it. Uh, some LTRs are beneficial. Some ENVs are beneficial. Some gags are beneficial, but not the entire thing. You can cut it up. Um, and as you said, some of them are missing some of those parts. But those are identifiable tags that show us that they are viral elements. And it doesn't, it actually, we can give you that it's a retrotransposon that originated in the genome. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, well, I'll finish that thought, but... Uh, so even if, uh, so this is a, with the LTRs example that you gave, this is exactly what we expect evolution to do is we have, and uh, promoters, uh, we expect that new DNA elements are introduced or are moved around that can change the regulation of certain genes or change the composition of the proteins of the genes that get made. And this is so this is not news it's just news that some of the vi the viruses are confirmed to have functions so that's exactly what we how we expect evolution to work is to co-opt new pieces of uh genetic information but as far as we can give you that they're not even 
the results of uh, retrovirus infections, but simply created transposable elements. I'll give you God created uh, these pieces of DNA, but if if you're going to go with their transposable elements, there's not there's no mechanism for them to transpose to the exact same place or or any very specific place. So the fact that they transpose in the exact same location, in the exact same genes, in the exact same location of chromosomes with the exact species is still evidence that they come that they are an inherited suite of a pattern well, one, that comes from a common ancestor. Well, before you go into your closing and maybe answer this in your closing, um, you understand that a lot of these uh, jumping genes, these retro transposons, they do have, it, it's not entirely random. They have prefer, preferred integration sites. As in maybe, you know, between this gene and this gene is going to allow for the essential function that, that it requires, or this will allow for the, um, for, genetic variation when they jump around so they have so it's not just completely random a lot of what we're looking at is is non-random and so that's why we would see them jumping into a lot of similar spots maybe save that for your closing you have five minutes sure Uh, yeah let's move into that um all right like you said uh, five minutes yeah you'll go ahead and go first all right so yeah um i calculated um being extremely generous and only Again, the, this one viral group, uh, the ERVWs, uh, HERVWs, if we're saying that there's only, so there's only, there's 211 that we have, and we're going to be extremely generous and say that there's only 211 possible places where it can insert, which is way, way too generous to be realistic, but we'll, let's go with that. Let's say that each virus can only go to one of these 211 places. And let's say that each has a 50% chance of going there. Because yet, like you said, there are preferred sections, but there are still millions of them. Uh, but we'll, we'll reduce it down to 211 and give it an extremely generous chance of 50-50%. We still have a 3 times 10 to the 64th chance of it occurring the way that it does. And so there's that. Plus it happened exactly the same way in chimps. Oh, well, uh, to the 205th. So uh, that's still statistically that's, I don't it's a bigger number than the quintillions. So even if we're being extremely generous and saying that it's a retrotransposon that's originating in the genome and it has exactly as many places as there are and no more and we're giving it a 50% chance it's still statistically about 0 likelihood that this is going to happen the same way in both chimps and humans um there's the and the fact that it just so happens to coincidentally match the exact same phylogenetic trees 
as is represented by uh, genetic barcoding of any other gene or uh, and the exact same phylogenetic tree as happens with morphology, that's not that's also a coincidence because it's a suite of traits. That's that can't be a coincidence is what I mean to say. Um, because again, there's hundreds of different insertion sites that could be anywhere that could be functional anywhere. We know that 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 could be functional anywhere. We uh, these uh, glowing jellyfish in my background. We just took their uh, fluorescent protein, and we can just stick it in pretty much anything and make it glow. And it doesn't really matter. It there, you can't just stick it literally anywhere. But it you can put it on different chromosomes, um, things like that. So the location is not important to function. So this is an extremely poor design for God to have programmed, knowing full well that people like I and 99% of all of the best scientists are going to see the evidence in apparently the wrong way. I'm not sure why he's going to make the decision to give a design that's apparently deliberately confusing. Um, and I've got about a minute left, I think. Um, as for functional elements... They're all related to uh, things that are that viruses are already capable of. Uh, they behave exactly how we expect um, these uh, signals to expect or to behave. Uh, it's not it's not out of the realm of uh, probability to expect uh, regulatory elements to have deleterious neutral and beneficial effects you can just throw them randomly into things and they'll have beneficial deleterious and neutral effects this happens with viruses and so that's not a problem the fact that uh, we observe in many species uh redundancies that can then be taken up that, that you can then lose one of those redundancies and still have a necessary function that explains every functional element that it re required functional elements um so yeah i think that just about wraps it up that does it for your five minutes snake excellent closing very good it's been a lively debate tons of points made so, Donnie, whenever you're ready to give your five-minute closing, man, have at it, and I'll start your timer. <clears throat> okay, I appreciate it. Let me start my timer as well. Lots to cover in just five minutes. So, no, it's not bad design. It's actually a perfect design, okay? These elements are essential. They're critical to immune responses, cell stress responses, embryological development. I mean, during this debate, I must have shown at least over a dozen technical papers um, verifying exactly what I'm saying. And uh, Taylor, unfortunately, he didn't provide even, even one technical paper showing empirical evidence for how these uh, elements can uh, evolve such as essential 
functions, including embryological development. I mean, that one paper I, I showed uh, from the secular literature literally admitted if it wasn't for this retrotransposon, we wouldn't exist. How is that bad design? They're admitting we wouldn't exist without it. That's good design. I like existing, and I think Taylor likes existing as well, okay? We share these elements with other forms of life like the chimpanzee simply because of common design since guess what? Chimpanzees also require elements to help with embryological development, determining cell types. Did you know chimpanzees are also made of cells? Yeah, believe it or not. Um, gene expression, gene regulation. Okay. Aiding in the immune system, tumor suppression, so on and so forth. Okay. So they require these elements as well. Were we just supposed to expect to find them only in humans and not in any other form of life? That sounds kind of bizarre. And uh, Taylor tries to counter uh, the fact that these endogenous retroviral sequences have incredibly important and essential roles that if you knock out a certain retrotransposon, the organism dies. Again, that is good design. But he looks to this uh, Phoenix virus experiment where um, scientists took human cells, mutated uh, the DNA ever so slightly uh, in the endogenous re retrovirus, and it turns out that an extinct virus was revived from a DNA sequence that was found in the human genome. That's exactly what we would predict, because as I've pointed out several times in this debate, okay, RNA virus, retroviruses require a host to replicate. What came first, the host or the RNA virus? I asked this question to uh, Snake a couple of times. Obviously the host, these had to have originated within the host. And we would suggest that they originated from functional ERV sequences. And that makes sense. We can actually track back every single exogenous retrovirus given the genes and the properties it has. We can track them back to the host that they originated from. Okay, and there's, there's many creation scientists, one specifically named Dr. Pierre Turborg, I think is how you say his last name, who has done just that. And there's been no counter. Okay, so the Phoenix, Phoenix experiment does not help. It actually helps our model that uh, suggests that a lot of these uh, viruses came from ERVs, came from the, the human genome to begin with. There's a paradox. There's an unsolvable problem with those that uh, believe in, in um, deep time evolution. Where did RNA viruses come from in the first place? Okay, so no, this is completely uh, compatible with our model and does not answer the question, the important question, are these really the ancient remnants of past viral infections or are they created units of DNA function? Okay, one function that, that we kind of touched on slightly is that when the cell is under, uh, under stress, okay, transcribed ERV elements gives the cell the appearance, notice this, of being invaded by a viral infection, which as a result targets the cell targets that specific cell, more destruction by the immune system. And some tumor cells can invade detection of the immune system, but this mechanism, which is mediated by what's called, it's a super protein, okay, P53, is a way for those tumor cells to become detectable by the immune system as a way for the immune system to clear these tumor cells from the body. And researchers, they're working on uh, various drugs that will uh, st stimulate P53 activity and the transcription of, of herbs as anti-cancer therapy, anti-cancer. These herb sequences are playing a role in tumor suppression through viral mimicry. Guys, the properties and structure of the herb sequence is required. It's, necess it's a necessary truth for these herb sequences to perform their roles. Notice here in the last 40 seconds. Seconds. Um, why would a creator produce functional genomic features that so closely resemble an endogenized, endogenized retrovirus? 
Okay, we've seen this in real time. I've shown many technical papers. The structural and functional features of the pre-existing ERVs, their capacity to copy themselves and move throughout the genome, are precisely what make these ERV sequences so useful. Their capacity for retro-transpositioning affords these sequences the means to disrupt the endogenization process of invading retroviruses. They literally act, they operate as antiretroviral elements. They must, they must, and I'll say it again, they must resemble endogenized retroviruses. They have to have these similarities to extant retroviruses or else they couldn't do their job. End of story, slam dunk. Irv argument for evolution is, I think, dead. It's a fatal blow. So I'll, I'll yield there. That actually, that's two seconds left. So that that's that's my closing statement. I appreciate it. Excellent timing again as well. Well, pretty good debate. I mean, I, I almost tailed off a few times not paying attention to the timer because uh, you guys are bringing up some good points. A lot of good questions. A lot of good information. <laughs> uh, now we get to move on Technical to subject. the real fun part, right? The the audience Q and A. We've got quite a few here. Um, Looks like we got about 18, 17 and a half minutes left till we hit the two hour mark. So we'll see how many we get through. I'm going to scroll down and we'll jump right into the super chats. Uh, first off, George Bond with the $10 chat, sweet chili chicken burger for lunch. Not bad, George. That sounds pretty good. Uh, Alec Cox with a $10 chat. Uh, he threw in some random stuff here, but his question um, how long does it take a cell to divide in a human? Number two, what is missed in that division? And I'm assuming this is uh, pertaining to something Snake said. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what is missed in that division. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. Me neither. How about the for any thoughts on the first part? How long does it take a cell to divide in a human? Alex asked. Uh, it's a couple hours, uh, 12 ish hours, uh, depending on the cell. 12 hours. Excellent. I'm not sure what the second part is. <laughs> me, neither. me neither. Me neither. You're getting a quiz, Taylor, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, we'll move on to the next one. Question for Danny. Has anyone seen a modern viral insertion into the genome that hasn't caused serious health problems for the host, something similar to HIV? Right. So when these modern viruses, these extant viruses like um, HIV, when they, um, when they invade the host cell, okay, they end up, um, it, it can be passed on uh, horizontally, but not vertically, like the endogenous uh, retroviruses, and they um, result in disease. They were they, they're deleterious. They're damaging, and these retroviruses are very interesting because I, I pointed it out in in my um, opening statement is is that they use a, a very specific enzyme called reverse transcriptase to transcribe. They're made of um, RNA genetic material. Okay, so they use this uh, enzyme to transcribe the RNA in reverse back into DNA. And um, 
the virus uses another important enzyme called integrase to integrate its genetic information directly into the host's DNA, okay? And if you are infected with one of these extant uh, retroviruses like HIV, for example, there's another one, um, the exact name of it, I can't think of right now, but it, it can actually result in lymphoma, various cancers. Okay, These are deleterious. These are damaging. But what we see in terms of the endogenous retroviruses that are tightly regulated and integrated into the genomes of living organisms, they function in the embryo. They function in determining cell types. They function in gene expression. They have antiviral properties. They function in tumor suppression. They uh, aid in transcription, act as promoters. I mean, I can go on and on and on. And th that's that's not deleterious like these extant uh, retroviruses. So I yield there. And what was the question again? The question was, has anyone seen a modern viral insertion into the genome that hasn't caused serious health problems for the host? Uh, modern? Uh, yeah, I'd have to look into exactly what it was. But um, yeah, most uh, diseases are not going to be fatal. Um, and uh, you were mentioning uh, reverse transcriptase a lot which is one of the hallmarks of a viral infection, which is not going to be required by something, even, even if uh, even those elements that are required to mimic a virus uh, for cancer, cancer regulation is not going to require reverse transcriptase. Um, that's just going to look, that's just going to tell us that it's actually from an infection. Any last thoughts um, on that, Johnny? You want to move on to the so, next one? Yeah. Okay, so it's my question. I'll, I'll give the last couple of thoughts. So, again, yeah, a lot of diseases that come about, okay? Not every single, uh, like a, a single point mutation can kill an organism. Okay, well, you know what? Uh, that organism's removed from the equation, okay? Selection's dealt with that. Selection is all about differential reproduction. Who's, who's having the most babies? Yeah. Most diseases are not detrimental enough to fitness where that uh, person experiencing the disease can't have kids and then pass on their uh, deleterious mutations with it. Like if, if I lost both my hands and both my feet, let's just say even through a mutation, that sucks. But it's not going to prevent me from having kids. Okay. So yeah, many, many diseases um, are, are not going to... Uh, prevent reproduction. And, and the last thing I want to say is, again, when it comes to the reverse transcriptase, the gag, the pole, the, the LTRs, the NV, whatever, okay, every single property is essential for what these do, specifically the transposons, how um, they, they, they are mobile, mobile genetic elements, and uh, they can move around the genome, jumping from one location to the next in the DNA. They can do this through a copy and paste mechanism or a cut and paste mechanism. And the structure, including the reverse transcriptase uh, property of these uh, ERV elements are required for their many functional uh, roles, this specific one in generating genetic variation, which is what creationists predicted. I'll, I'll yield there. Excellent. I hope that satisfied the questioner there. We'll move on to the next one. I think this one is for you, Snake, uh, pertaining evolution. They say, so if evolution is the result of random unguided processes, why should we expect to see any kind of a pattern at all? Because uh, it's not. It's, it's not unguided. 
at all. It's guided by chemistry. It's guided by uh, selection pressures. Um, so, I mean, and we can prove that the, these exact mechanisms can create functional elements, uh, whether we're looking at uh, computer simulations of random mutations and then uh, being subjected to selection, which can cause uh, functional code or functional uh, body parts if we're simulating 3D body parts. Uh, these All these exact same uh, processes work. Uh, we can also observe it uh, at the genetic level with actual organisms. Uh, but again, it's not unguided. So I'm not sure what... Uh, that that's usually a straw man uh, calling it an unguided process because it's not. Okay, Danny. Yeah, if I could, these patterns that uh, that we see, let's say specifically the nested hierarchical patterns, the fact that we share more with other primates, let's say we share more with the chimpanzee than we do with uh, with a lemur. We share more with even the lemur. We can be grouped together with the chimpanzee and the lemur. Uh, because we share more in terms of morphology, anatomy, physiology, and genetics than we do with a dog or a fish. I mean, this is expected, of course. Just stand back and, and look at the organism. You're going to predict more similarities uh, in genetics with a chimpanzee than, than with a dog. But even, even when it comes to these patterns that apparently, according to the evolutionists, are expected and, and predicted, uh, from common descent, from the common descent starting point, uh, we see inconsistencies all the time. There's something called incomplete lineage sorting, where uh, depending on what gene you look at, depending on what genetic marker you look at, you're going to get totally different trees. Look at the Y chromosome, for example. The Y chromosome between the humans and uh, gorillas <laughs> is more similar than uh, the Y chromosome between humans and chimpanzees. There's a break in the so-called hierarchy. And even when it comes to these uh, endogenous retroviral-like uh, sequences, there's inconsistencies in the hierarchy as well. For example, here's a paper. A herve, whenever you see the H, human, human endogenous retroviral, K provirus in chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas. These observations provide very strong evidence that for some fraction of the genome, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, notice this, are more closely related to each other than they are to humans. Okay, but the bottom line is we do share more endogenous retroviral-like sequences with, let's say, the chimpanzee than we do with a, a creature that we share less in terms of morphology and anatomy with because we, sh we share more in, in terms of anatomy, morphology, physiology. So, of course, we're going to share some of these uh, ERV sequences with them, especially if they function, again, in the embryo, determining cell types, gene expression, so on and so forth. That, to me, points to common design, um, explaining the pattern far better than evolution. I'll yield there. Last word, Snake. Yeah, so that seems to be an inconsistency that you would expect similar morphology to have the exact same genetic elements. Um, but then you point out places, uh, isolated places where there are uh, certain breaks in the phylogenetic tree. Um, but that's not really how phylogeny is done. It's done with a suite of traits, not just one single trait. Um, and the Y chromosome specifically is one of the most fastest mutating. Uh, well, it is the fastest mutating chromosome we have. Um, but it's not really the arguments, at least with ERVs, is not about uh, strictly about the similarity. Um, it's about the fact that has gone 
uh, basically unaddressed completely, which is that regardless of where you think they originate, these are elements that uh, came to rest where they are in the genome by, via either infection or transposition, which is statistically impossible to end up the exact same way in two different species like that. Um, and the fact that it, we can predict how much, that's just an added cherry on top, I guess. Excellent. All right. So before we move on to the next question, let me just say that logical, plausible, probable is having an after show. And that is exclusive for cool people. So if you're not cool, don't even think about going over there. High probability of dumpster fire. And I am a fan of probability theory, even uh, Bayesian probability, which puts the resurrection at a probability of 0.97. And I would say the probability of dumpster fire might not be as good as the resurrection. We'll put LPP's dumpster fire like 0.96. But make your way on over there after this if you want to. Let's get on to the next question. I think this is for both of you guys. <laughs> okay, it's good. Only losers won't come to the after show. All right, so question for both of you guys. Do ERVs in similar areas of coding sequence because of similar pressure and similar purpose ERVs seem to be no more evidence of common descent than of common design. Same pressure, same region. Uh, well, you could make certain arguments that it is, uh, I guess, agnostic for things like function. Yeah, it, it could go either way. Um, but again, the, the thing that really differentiates it is the, uh, the viral elements that, you know, uh, viral exclusive elements that we know are from viruses um, or if you prefer tra uh, transposable elements um, like you said sometimes the uh, there are more or less uh, parts of the virus where the fact that it looks like an ERV is important in it's it expressing itself in cancer cells so that it, it can be detected and will target cancer cells uh, this is to be expected. Um, if there's an infection, it, a different, uh, an added genome can tag things to be differently, uh, to look differently. Um, but uh, other other things like the the mammal required uh, placental ERV, it doesn't have to mimic an ERV. Um, so there are certain uh, parts of the genome that are not necessary, but still mark it as an ERV. And that's how we're able to identify them as separate parts. They, these aren't just random pieces of the genome that we're deciding had to have come from viruses. They have specific tags. Um, and um, yeah, all, all the papers you're referencing are have been reviewed by evolutionary biologists, and they come to uh, the conclusion that they are evolved. Like the one you quoted about uh, mammalian uh, ERVs is about the evolution of retroviruses. Um, we should go into detail about that study. Uh, there should be a round two. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess I started off my statement saying, there are things, there are uh, functional elements which could be agnostic, which could be designed. The thing that is not agnostic to this debate is the 
the likelihoods that these elements are transposed to the locations that they are is uh, basically zero. So, and we haven't really addressed that at all. Okay. <clears throat> well, I appreciate that response. Um, first thing I want to add is, <laughs> I'm choking. That's the first thing I want to add is, <coughs> The evolutionists keep saying that, that these are expected, but then they admit that they never predicted the function. So how are these things expected if they, they never predicted the embryological uh, developmental requirements, essentially, of, of these retrotransposons? And I saw someone in the chat. Yeah, uh, apparently the, the technical way of saying ERV is ERV. Their ERVs or ALU sequences, ALU. Uh, but oftentimes it is easier just to say ERV, endogenous retrovirus. But yeah, so the evolutionists never predicted. They, and, and I'll go on record saying they retrofitted the data. And of course, the authors of, of, this, of these papers are not going to conclude, okay, special creation. I mean, that's off the table. Okay, they, they are required. Sure, they can question some details of the evolutionary story, but they can't question uh, the bigger picture. They can't conclude, well, okay, you know, this must mean they're created units of DNA function. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that paper wouldn't be published. That's why they say things like motors or engines of evolution, positive selection. That's not telling us how an endogenous retroviral-like element can go from what they once assumed was junk to something incredibly functional in the immune system. I mean, I find this so funny. So apparently <clears throat> we were invaded by exogenous retroviruses which today endogenous retroviruses fight against, protect us against. So these exogenous retroviruses got passed down vertically, became endogenized, and eventually uh, evolved the ability to fight off that which they were before. I mean, that sounds to me kind of bizarre. Okay, a lot of this is just fanciful storytelling. It, it's a fairy tale. And here in this question, if I'm understanding it correctly, <clears throat> I wanna urge creationists. Taylor does have a point. If we are saying that these are actually the result of ancient viral infection. Some creationists uh, hold that position. And I wouldn't recommend that because Taylor is right. We share a lot of these sequences or even uh, fragments with the chimpanzees. And so it's very unlikely that, that we independently experienced the uh, invasion of, of these viruses in um, similar positions. Okay. You know, one, given the amount of locations in the genome is somewhere like one in a million. So if you go into 200, 300, <clears throat> it's, it's even more than that, of course, because that's not what the evidence suggests anyways. The fact is the mutations that we find in the structure of the endogenous retroviral elements, like the LTRs, yeah, that can be due to environmental pressures. We know mutations are not as random as once expected or predicted. No, mutations are essentially, a lot of them are non-random. Okay, we also know that evolutionists assume all DNA differences are the result of mutations over time. So a lot of these DNA differences are, you know, quote unquote mutations in the properties of the ERV, like the LTRs that form these nested hierarchical patterns, may not even be uh, the result of mutations. They may be uh, functional differences that are required for the respective uh, organism. So anyways, I, I could talk all day, but I'll, I'll just say, you know what, as a creationist, we should go with what the evidence suggests. And the evidence suggests that these are created units of DNA function. If a creationist wants to say that these are the result of uh, ancient infections or even infections thousands of years ago, now the creationist is stuck in the same position as the evolutionist. 
how do you explain the functional roles? How did those, uh, you know, uh, get adopted essentially? So uh, I'll yield there. Good question. Anything you want to add to that, Taylor? Um, so uh, in that paper you were talking about, they there are conserved sequences of the ERVs and non-conserved sequences. So they they're using that to track basically uh, the the lineage of a certain ERV, which, I mean, there's different levels of this. So there's the shared ERVs, and then within those shared ERVs, there are even further differences um, that aren't seen in the conserved domains. Um, and the, the point there is the highly variable regions are essentially not functional because they're so highly variable, um, uh, especially LTRs. But... Um, well, actually, Taylor, uh, to, that was a question for both. Can I just respond to one well, thing? and then I, I have one more thing to respond to. Sure, um, as far as, um, what was it? My I kind of derailed my train of thought there. Um, so, yeah, go go ahead. As If, if I can, uh, I'll get my train of thought back, but you can go ahead. And, <laughs> Apologies. Yeah. I almost forgot what I was going to respond to. Okay, so the conservers, non-conserved regions. Okay, when you find these conserved regions, let's say let's say we just stick with ERVs, ERV sequences. If we find an ERV sequence in, let's say, humans and chimpanzees that's nearly identical or um, conserved, as you could put it, evolutionists say, well, you know, these are we have these conserved sections of DNA in humans and mice because they're, they're essential, they're, they're important. So selection has essentially conserved or preserved them over time. But here's the thing, an, an ERV sequence in humans that say has to deal with uh, determining cell types or, or uh, regulating genes, but specifically we're focusing on, you know, similarities in morphology or anatomy, that ERV sequence is going to be very uh, similar anyways. And um, that, so that, that could be interpreted as conserved. But then non-conserved regions, that doesn't mean that it's non-functional. It just means there's also some parts or aspects to the gene expression pathway found in humans that's a lot um, more dissimilar to chimpanzees. So we would expect that those would, the evolutionists would say those are non-conserved. No, they're different because humans also have a lot of differences with the chimpanzees. And so those those functional uh, differences would, would reflect in the sequences as well. And, and the DNA differences in those sequences, the evolutionists might say are due to mutations over time. But maybe those differences are actually there because they're reflecting functional differences between humans and chimpanzees. So that was kind of a mouthful, but I'll, I'll yield there. Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the thing I, I lost my train of thought on was the the idea that, um, oh, I'm losing it again, <laughs> It's I'm going back, what were you saying, uh, the being able to, uh, you said that we're just kind of accommodating the data, so uh, I guess I wanted to clarify, um, yeah, so it wasn't predicted necessarily the that ERVs had a specific function, but it is it's not unexpected. Like they weren't surprised or caught off guard that ERVs had the specific functions that they did because they already knew that viral elements had that function of uh, 
they can regulate themselves. They can disrupt genes. In fact, that is one of the causal elements of why uh, so many retroviruses can cause cancers is because they interrupt uh, cell division regulatory genes, um, apoptosis regulatory genes, uh, which is programmed cell death. Uh, so when we confirmed what, like, we're not going to be able to predict everything about the genome because of uh, basic Darwinistic mechanisms. So there's always going to be something to discover. Um, but it it's always in line with what we know about what the already knew what the functions that viruses are capable of have. So we're not seeing things like, um, I don't know, like a, like a, blood coagulant or like an antifreeze gene coming off of the uh, these things that apparently look like ERVs, um, we're seeing virus-related functions. So, uh, yeah, and just to kind of liken it to uh, crime scene investigation, we're not going to say, well, it looks like the victim has been stabbed with a knife, but he could have just been born with the knife in his chest. We're going to say, okay, we know knives can get there by the process of stabbing. Same thing we're doing with the ERVs. We know that they can get, we know that it looks exactly like this when retroviruses insert themselves. So, uh, and a lot of the functions are not, related to needing the entire retroviral uh, suite of traits. Um, and that's why there's such a highly variable region. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so like that question alone could have been a whole other debate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I just want to ask one simple question and then we can move on. Are, are you going on record saying that exogenous retroviruses they can accomplish many crucial crucial functions, such as regulating gene expression, cell differentiation, and embryological development. Is that your position? Uh, they have, yeah, that they have the ability to regulate or disrupt genes that they insert into. <laughs> disrupt, we've seen, but we mm -hmm. have not seen an exogenous retrovirus integrate itself into the genome, be passed on vertically to be essential in embryological development to the point where we could say, wow, if it wasn't for that retrotransposon, we couldn't exist. Show me a technical paper on that. Send it to me after, or, it, you know, I, I'm going to call a bluff on that one, Taylor. Uh, but we have seen is that their, their ability to regulate the genes that they're part of or inside um, of or bordering. So we've, we've observed the turning on and off of genes, uh, the, the, these exogenous retroviruses involving themselves in, in the gene expression pathway, you're saying? We've, we've observed this? Uh, yeah, that's what they do. Okay, so what's a technical paper that, that shows an exogenous retrovirus infiltrating the, the cell and, and then um, adopting a function where it actually helps in gene regulation, cell differentiation, expression, things like that. Like we've observed this in the lab, you're saying? 
Um, well, uh, when you're going highly specific laboratory experiment that includes a beneficial, necessary retroviral insertion, uh, I can look for one for you. We can have a round two. Um, but as far as the functions, uh, regulatory functions are, and as far as the fact that we can tell what uh, DNA elements are inserted and transposed. Uh, yeah, we um, using the evidence that they are, in fact, retrovirus infections, we can tell that certain uh, viruses or certain ERVs necessary for development are were the result of infections. Um, as far as us accomplishing this in the lab, uh, I'll have to search for one for you, but well, we see these herb sequences that you say are genomic fossils, right? Brandon's laughing, never ending. We see that they function in turning genes on and off. That's what gene regulation is essentially. Okay. And we know that uh, gene regulation is incredibly important in, in uh, development. And these genes are often turned on and off based on the presence or non-presence of these ERV-like sequences. So we see that. We see that they function that way. But we don't see exogenous retroviruses invade the cell and then evolve that function. That we don't see. So it sounds like to me, you're, you're seeing the, the functions in the endogenous retroviral-like sequences and assuming, well, the exogenous retroviruses may already have the built-in capacity for that function. Is that essentially what you're saying? Well, we know that they do have the built-in capacity to regulate. To regulate the host genes in helping with development, turning genes on and off. We know that. Uh, if it happens to affect a gene that ha is involved in uh, development... Well, let's see that. And, sure. and we're just, I'm just asking, let's see that. Let's see. A, I want to, because all I ever see is engines of evolution, positive selection. We don't see, okay, you know, here's an empirical example and observable and example of an exogenous retrovirus integrated into the cell being passed down vertically. And now, wow, look at this. It's, it's critically functional for the, the organism. You know, I, I don't believe we see that. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And we do, but I would just have to have you prove that to me is what I'm saying. Yeah, um, but that what I'm saying is that's an unreasonable standard of evidence because we already know that redundancies and um, uh, dependencies can evolve. And we already know ERV is not an answer, serve. though. We already know that they can regulate. And we know where we these we know that these elements come from. I think we'll save that one for round two. Huh? Round two. Yeah. yeah, it's a good it's a good topic, and this has been enjoyable, Taylor. I appreciate. We, we it. could we could make it just on that mammal paper. Well, we here's a, here's a question that might uh, that might lead you into that about mammals and endogenous endogenous retroviruses inserting themselves. The question states: If we see similarities in monkeys, would we then find some of the endogenous retroviruses to be in other mammals like whales? We do find directed towards you, Taylor. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry for we do out. have some similarities with whales, yeah. As far as the RVs go. Um, like you said, a lot of these are mammalian specific, uh, which all mammals share. And there there's a uh, 
phylogenetic tree, a, a nested hierarchy um, that shows the same relationship as is predicted by evolutionary biology uh, through morphology. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> ERV sequences are, are abundant in jawed vertebrates, mammals, obviously, and in primates. We're talking specifically here about um, the primates and how these ERV-like sequences do fall out into a, um, a nested hierarchy, as well as their uh, mutations. A lot of the times in the structure of these ERVs, they also fall into a, a hierarchy. But here's the thing. Again, going back to the beginning of the debate, is what we're looking at in terms of these so-called genomic fossils, are we really looking at the ancient remnants of viral infections? I'm saying no. Or are they created units of DNA function? That I'm saying yes to. And we can predict function. Evolutionists admit that they never predicted it, but they say over and over again that we expected it. Okay. Well, if you didn't predict it, and essentially you're retrofitting the data and all their papers never actually say how these functions were co-opted or came about, they just make the claim. They just assert co-option, rapid evolution, engines of evolution, so on and so forth. But the, the, they don't actually give a, an empirical reason for uh, a creationist to believe, okay, you know, non-functional uh, properties of, of the endogenous retroviral element or unit, uh, you know, went from, from non-functional to something incredibly functional in determining cell types, gene expression, so on and so forth. And again, the question, the follow-up question by the evolutionist is, well, why do they resemble exogenous retroviruses? Why do they have, you know, LTRs and the gag gene, the pole gene, um, and, and the uh, envelope protein, for example. And it's like, we just had a paper in either 2021 or 2022 that, that I showed earlier that demonstrates that these properties and the structure of the ERV is required for its purpose and job. I mean, that's perfectly compatible with the creation model. And the evolutionists can reject it and say, well, no, we were invaded by a virus. And then the virus became an endogenous retrovirus as it was passed on vertically. And then it evolved the ability to fight off that which it used to be. I mean, to me, that just sounds ridiculous. When it comes to the hierarchy, of course, if these are created units of DNA function, okay, this should be basic to anybody, then of course we are going to share more for example, humans and chimpanzees, we are going to share more of these ERV sequences with the chimpanzee than we're going to with the mouse or a whale, okay? Because we already share more with the chimpanzee in terms of morphology, anatomy, physiology, and genetics. A sedan is going to, by definition, share more features with the SUV than it is with a, a bicycle or a plane. Just stand back, look at the... Um, the structures and, and anybody can, can predict that. So the nested hierarchies that we find are agnostic. What's not agnostic is the function. That is my position. I am making the claim that DNA function can help differentiate between the models. Ancient viral infections created units of DNA function, repredict function evolutionists, although they've had to retrofit the data, they predict these are evolutionary leftovers. Okay. And so they would predict non-function. They'll still predict most of them are non-functional, even though that, that logically has been, has been overturned. So I believe the DNA function and the lack of response from the evolutionists in explaining the DNA function is the fatal blow to the 
uh, to their interpretation of, of the endogenous retroviruses. I yield there. Taylor? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the nested hierarchies are agnostic until you get to transitional forms that connect all the separate hierarchies. Uh, and like when, what you were saying about um, the, the cancer regulation ERVs that need um, more of the viral elements, that's a completely different mechanism from the mammalian uh, developmental ERVs that do not um, and do not need to uh, resemble um, vir a virus. That's related to regulation, not immune development. Um, and then the final point, I guess, is just uh, prediction versus expectation. So it wasn't, uh, we didn't predict the functions, we investigated the functions. So um, and then we didn't predict non-function. It was more just a lack of, we don't know what they do. We're, we're not predicting what they do. Um, so they investigated what it does. Um, but all functions were within expectations of what viruses function as. Um, so don't, uh, I don't want people to confuse uh, expected virus function with a prediction that a specific ERV is going to function in a specific way. Interesting. Um, I do have a question from Dustin. Um, it's a little tough to read. I don't know if you can see this, Donnie. I asked him to rephrase it in the comment section a while back, but let's see what you guys can make of this. He says, where does the line lie as far as an inherent genetic trait and a new something that develop. I know that sounded kind of choppy, but again, he says, where does the line lie as far as an inherent genetic trait and new ones that develop? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says. I can't. For example, alcohol was once thought to be passed down, but not every ancestor had access to alcohol. Does that make any sense to you guys? The line between inherent genetic trait and new ones that develop. Um, as <laughs> if I try and understand that as far as the evolutionary perspective, uh, there isn't a line because new traits that develop are derived from inherited genetic traits. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the enzyme to metabolize alcohol is what he's talking about. It's possible. I don't know what a WAN is, the WONS. I don't know what WANs are. So I'd, maybe can you make sense of that, Donnie. You maybe got he's talking about um, the difference between uh, genetic traits that we all share and, and traits that have been regionally adapted. Yeah, I don't see him in the chat anymore. Maybe he left. So if I mean, if you got anything to say on that, Donnie, feel free. If not, we can we can uh, <laughs> skip that one. <laughs> yeah, let's move on to the last one or two because we're coming at the two and a half hour mark, and I'm getting pretty exhausted at this point. Very well, this interesting is, technical debate. So this, this is, is the last one here from Bubblegum. Um, Bubblegum Gun. It's a little tongue in cheek, but this is more of a statement to the both of you. 
He says, how convenient that these ERVs found just the right spot to insert themselves to later in the future become necessary. Such foresight from that virus. Uh, yeah, so that's not, as I've explained, that's not really how it works. So the, the fact that something is necessary is not an indication that it was ever the only necessary element or the only uh, part of the genome that served that function. We know there are biological um, redundancies. We know the mechanisms by which you can gain a redundancy and then lose that redundancy, but the part of the genome supporting that function changes because there is a redundancy. Uh, it's like if you have... Uh, I don't know, two different uh, ways to support. Like my computer is supported by a couple of books right now. I'm putting it up high. If I put another book in there and I take another book out, it's still supported. Um, so it's not the second book having the foresight to be necessary. There And there are a lot of uh, ERVs that are not necessary. Uh, and in fact, are still harmful. So, so much that could be said there. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, hinder myself from, from a monologue, but um, I, I think Bubblegum Gun nails it there, where it, it must be convenient that the essentially these deleterious exogenous retroviral infections um, invaded the genome, invaded the cell, invaded in, in the right spot to be passed on vertically and eventually become an endogenous retrovirus. The offspring um, would, would have this viral DNA in every single one of itself. And then eventually it also adopts, co-ops, evolves the uh, essential functions necessary for humans to even exist. Okay, uh, essential in embryological development, snip out that certain class of retrotransposon. And although the mouse is developing, bam, you snip it out, it dies. Okay, in evolution, when they talk about uh, redundancy, they'll often uh, talk about it in a different way than we would. Okay, redundancy is evidence of, of forward thinking. Anybody who does computer code understands that, okay? Or let's say a spare tire in, in the back of your car. Well, to the evolutionist, that might be redundant. Like, why is that there? I've already got four tires and they work just great. But you know what? If the environmental condition arises where you get a flat tire, thank God you got that uh, that spare, okay? But what's, what's funny about that is once you use that spare, okay, that's it. You're even even uh, redundancy can only go so far because mutation like treading on your tires. Every time you go out driving, you are ruining the, the, the treading and eventually you'll you'll need new tires. Now it's there. It, it, it's redundant. It's there for wear and tear, but it can only last for so long. OK, any any computer coder can tell you redundancy is evidence of forward thinking. The evolutionists, though, they look to redundancy and essentially they give evolutionary mechanisms a mind. Because they'll say, well, these neutral mutations, which we know is false, we know they're, they're uh, nearly neutral, effectively neutral, slightly deleterious, they build up over time and they become like a hidden reservoir of genetic change. 
where at some point this quote-unquote redundancy or genetic baggage can be called upon through mutations, neo-functionalization, co-option, whatever, co-option when it comes to the, the herbs, and, uh, and they can become beneficial. Okay, now th this hasn't been observed specifically with the ERV sequences. We haven't observed the types of functions that we see. The evolutionists never predicted it. And they'll admit, no, we never predicted it. You know, we used to assume that, that, that these were uh, the junk, useless, and now we know that, that they are uh, functional in tumor suppression, gene regulation, antiviral function. Okay, again, I want to point out, it sounds silly to anybody who thinks about it logically, that these viruses invaded the organism and then eventually evolved the ability to fight off that which they were. <laughs> it's like a robber breaking into your house, but deciding to live there for some reason, has an agreement with, with uh, you know, the, the people that live there and own the house at the time and, and decides to just have a change of life. He repented and now he's going to fight off future robbers from breaking into the house. It's just, it's ridiculous. And a lot of this, it's storytelling, it's imagination. You know, we want the empirical evidence. We want the technical uh, data. And we just focused on ERVs tonight for the most part. But I mean, we can talk about uh, all sorts of, of function for, for what was once assumed to be uh, junk DNA. Nucleoskeletal hypothesis is fascinating. I talked about it with Dr. Fazrana in my two-part series with him. Uh, these so-called uh, junk DNA regions are acting as a mutational buffer. They're maintaining the 3D structure, which, which is amazing. It's like, the, the, this just came about for, for no reason because of uh, the buildup of neutral mutations, regulate histone binding, gene regulation, the pseudogenes code for uh, functional proteins. So I'll, I'll end it there. I, I just think that the whole uh, model of these neutral mutations building up to the point where they can be called upon for um, beneficial change or novelty. I, I think that that's more in theory or, or even just a hypothesis which, which without any real uh, solid supporting evidence. So I guess we'll give Snake, I think the question was for Snake. He can have the last word. Yeah, so we have an anti-fragile genome, which basically means um, that uh, you can mess with it a little bit. Um, some, some mutations are worse than others. Um, but we get along just fine with uh, some instability where uh, we have certain things like um, like with cancer. Um, there are certain things that are, are cancer-causing, but we can get along with them for a while, and then cancer hits in old age. Um, so uh, some instability where ERVs can cause uh, cancer. Um, we can live with those mutations. Um, and then there are some ERVs that cause instability in cancer-causing uh, genes uh, that um, interrupt those or combat them in some way um, by tagging them, or they can also... Uh, uh, they can upregulate or downregulate genes, and the fact that we see both is more consistent and pro and actually exclusive to evolutionary mechanisms um uh because this is like this is more consistent with the hit or miss type of uh method of evolution because we're seeing from the same uh, genetic elements viral elements we're seeing 
both beneficial and deleterious uh, effects, um, upregulating, up, upregulating, downregulating. Uh, out of the thousands of ERVs we have, there are literally just a handful of uh, like one or two that are absolutely necessary. Um, so, and all of the rest of them are not. Um, so that's way more consistent with the kind of shotgun approach of evolution, where most of these are going to hit in places that are really not going to do much. They're going to be basically neutral. We're going to see all, uh, their function all over the place, um, going up and down, um, beneficial, uh, deleterious. That's not what we're going to see if we're looking at a perfectly designed genome. So, um, and then let's not forget that even in the best case, these are transposable elements that could not have possibly ended up in the same locations. Um, yeah. Is that, that it? it? <laughs> Is that our final question? <laughs> we made it. Two and a half hours on just ERVs. I think that's that's pretty. You know, Snake. This might be the most comprehensive debate on endogenous retroviruses that that exists. And I think this is an important topic. And I, for one, want to do more of these types of debates where we focus on one line of argument, as compared to some of these debates where it's just a shotgun of of arguments that that we deal with. ERVs is an incredibly important topic, incredibly technical topic. And I'm glad that we had such a great audience on, on a very technical topic. So, of course, let's do a round two where we can go over uh, some of the papers brought up, some of the arguments. Yeah, um, like I, I would I would even say we go even more specific, like just talk about certain like one or two a handful of papers at a time within a, at a very highly specific topic. So because at this point we've had the same like oh evolution versus creation debates like hundreds of times so i think the audience is ready for amen a little deep, amen. deeper let's, dive there yeah let's uh let's give them the meat and potatoes so yeah. uh ervs is uh to the evolutionist the uh one of some say that the number one best evidence for evolution. So as a, as a creationist, I think, uh, you know, we should be tackling these, these types of debates and arguments. And I really, really enjoy this. I think this was a ton of fun snake. I'll send you, uh, maybe a few of the papers that, that I brought up. You can look through them and, and pick which one you want to discuss specifically. And we'll, we'll do some type of follow-up discussion on, on those. So again, Taylor, thanks so much. Brandon, great job moderating, brother. You're a superstar. You're the man with the plan. Very impressive. So listen, so next time you guys debate, it's going to be a rigid timer. I'm going to bring a blowhorn. <laughs> and that's it. We had a kind of a second debate there at the end. Yeah, you did. We did. You yeah, did. That, I'm not sure who, who asked that question, but uh, kudos to you. <laughs> uh, your one question was a ripple effect into a whole nother debate. <laughs> Brandon, go ahead as host, uh, closer down with, with some closing words, thoughts, jokes, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but man, I got to tell you, I, I actually learned a lot from that debate. 
uh, not just from Donnie, but you as well, Taylor. I, I think you're, you know, pretty well read in the topic, and not a lot of people are. It's just, it's one of those uh, niche topics that's tough to get into, um, and and and, and kind of stay. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Like to keep it interesting, we're you know people don't find that topic interesting like some of the other things do, but it is really important. Like SFT mentioned a few times, so. I appreciate the debate. I learned quite a bit uh, from the both of you. I think a, a second debate is going to be excellent. Um, I'd like to read some of the, uh, you know, studies both of you have looked at. I think it's some pretty good talking points and something I'm definitely interested. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to run too long. I guess I'll just remind everybody again, head over on the LPP's channel. If you want to experience what it's like to stand on the, surface of the sun in a blazing inferno you can have that, that over there <laughs> for me i'm gonna get some food and uh you know get some beverages in me and then i may just uh head on over there after uh, this was a fun engaging technical debate so i'm definitely going to uh, relax for a bit and an important debate so i appreciate the the prep obviously that that you know Taylor put into this because to make for a nearly three hour debate on ERVs is, is pretty awesome. And I had a ton of fun. So those are my final words, uh, Taylor, final words from you. Yeah, it, uh, depends on what the, the ladies in my house, uh, are feeling, whether I, my, my dog and my girlfriend, uh, if I go over the after show or not, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're the boss for now. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Snake. Thank you so much to the audience for tuning in. I appreciate some some great um, engagement in, in the chat. Although I was debating, I didn't see a lot of it, but I look forward to uh, rewatching and, and getting some, I'm sure, laughs from the uh, from the side chat. One quick reminder, this Friday, we've got uh, Matt Slick, the great Trinity debate. He's taken on Otis Lewis. And on the Thursday, we've got the uh, the epic round two between uh, Kent Hovind and Wade the Wizard. So there's three heroic debates for you guys this week. So lots of fun. Make sure you're subscribed if you're not yet subscribed. And share around this content and share around this debate. It's an important topic, and I think this one was a ton of fun. So anyways, God bless. Stand for Truth is out. Peace.